Every year, somewhere between 50 to 75,000 fans of Elvis Presley stream down to Graceland, Memphis, Tennessee for what's called Elvis Week. They do this every year and they come to pay their respects and remember the king of rock and roll. They come to pay their respects to the king. It was 35 years ago that the king died. At least that's what most of us believe. Because I don't have to tell you that there are some people who believe, and I mean really believe, that the king did not die, that Elvis is still alive. The Elvis sighting logs, and there is such a thing, report that Elvis was seen delivering pizza in Tennessee, eating at a chicken joint in Georgia, using the bathroom at a Fuddruckers in Florida. Now you hear that and I know what you're thinking. Southerners, right? Uh, me too, right? But then he was also reported even seen at a Walmart here in Philadelphia. Now you get the idea, right? Everybody knows that Elvis is dead, but there are some people who refuse to believe. Some people who still hold out hope that he's still alive. Some people who cling to the idea that no, he has not died, he is still alive. And you could probably group those people right next to the folks who believe in the Loch Ness Monster and Bigfoot and alien abductions and crop circles, the Easter Bunny, and so on and so on. You know what many people in our culture would say? You know what some of you in the room would think in your hearts? You know who else you could add to that list? Christians. Christians who believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. You could probably lump them in together. Sure, there are Christians who insist, no, no, we swear he did not die. He rose from the dead. But that's probably as reliable and credible as the Elvis folks, as the Bigfoot folks, and so on and so on it goes. Now, I, I get that. I want you to hear that. I get that there is a great deal of skepticism that comes with the Christian claim that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, having been dead Friday through Sunday. I get that. I get that that's a hard thing to swallow. I get the skepticism because there was skepticism from the hour it was announced. The Bible does not hide that even for the first recipients of that message, it was unbelievable. They had no thought that it was true. They mocked it as the the crazy tale of some confused, sad women. Skepticism is how the resurrection was met from the first hour. In fact, let me tell you this. We named our church Seven Mile Road Church after the account of two skeptics who encountered the resurrection story and did not believe it. We get skepticism. We're okay with skepticism. Good, honest struggles and questions are part of the journey. So then the question is, would any reasonable person, why would any thinking, educated, reasonable person in 2012 possibly imagine, possibly believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Is this a nice legend, myth, fairy tale, fable, or is there something credible to this claim? Something you could sink your teeth into? Now hear this, I know that many of you believe in the resurrection of Jesus because you've had a personal encounter with Jesus. Some of you believe in Jesus because you met the living Lord Jesus in your life. He transformed your life. And your personal experience is a perfectly valid reason for why you believe in His resurrection. I commend you to it. I hold it myself. But at the same time, I know that for some of you in the room, 
You want to say, okay, besides this subjective personal experience, is there anything we could sink our teeth into as to why we would actually believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Is there any credible evidence? Is there any historical occurrences that would lead us to think this thing could have actually happened? And I want to contend that there is. I want to contend that in light of the historical facts that happened on that Sunday 2,000 years ago, that the resurrection of Jesus is the best and most reasonable explanation of what happened on that Sunday. Now that is a lofty, easy sentence for a preacher to make. Let me say that again so you hear it. I want to contend that based on the evidence of the historical facts, I'm not talking theological facts. I'm saying historical occurrences. The resurrection is the best and most reasonable explanation of what happened on that Sunday 2,000 years ago. Now, having dropped that sort of a bomb, let me be clear about one thing. I am not saying that we can prove that the resurrection happened, partly because there are so many things we cannot prove. We can hardly prove anything. I cannot prove that George Washington was the first president of the United States of America. But that does not mean that you have to stick your head in the sand and pretend it didn't happen. You know it's true. There is enough evidence that leads us to say that is reasonable, that is believable. I can't prove that your spouse loves you. I can't prove that you're not sitting here right now as a butterfly dreaming that you're a human being. I can't prove that there's something wrong with everyone who loves country music. But we know these things are true, right? We know them to be true. Listen, just because not everything fits under a microscope or into a test tube does not mean that it did not happen. I can't put love under a microscope. I can't put beauty into a test tube. These things are true. You know them to be true. Likewise, I have no picture of Jesus emerging from the tomb. We have no audio recording of Mary Magdalene and her conversation. We have no video footage of Jesus standing with his disciples. Nevertheless, there is good reason, credible reason, that you should latch onto this thing, not just as a thing you were taught as a child, but historical reality, that Jesus Christ really rose from the dead. And those facts, I think, would stand under the most fierce scrutiny and skepticism there is. So here's what I want to do. I want to read for us again from 1 Corinthians 15. That's the passage that John read for us. I want to read for us verses 3 to 8 once more. And I want you to consider four facts this morning. 1 Corinthians 15 verses 3 to 8. Here's what it says. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Let's pray for a moment, and then we'll press into this together. Our Father, we do give you thanks for the good news that your Son rose from the dead, and we pray that you would be with us as we seek to honor you through your Word. Help us by your Holy Spirit. Overcome our own weaknesses, hardness, and even our resistance and doubts. And would you, by your Spirit, show to us truth, or begin us on an inquiry of truth, a search for truth, 
that would not rest until we have hold of it. And, and we believe, I believe, Jesus said, I am the truth. And all searches for truth will ultimately lead to you. And do that this morning. Lead us to Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me say verse 3 again. For I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Here's the first fact I would have you consider. Jesus died. Jesus died. Okay, you, you might say, Ajay, why when you are trying to establish the reasonableness of the resurrection, the credibility of the resurrection, would you first start with Jesus' death? We had that service on Friday. Here's why. Because something has to be accounted for what happened on that Sunday 2,000 years ago. And so when alternative explanations are posited for what could have happened, anything other than Jesus rose from the dead, what else could have happened? One of the things that is done is perhaps suggested that maybe Jesus didn't die after all. Maybe there was no glorious resurrection because there was no death in the first place. Now I want you to hear this. Even the most ardent opponent skeptic cynics generally, for the most part, in the majority, concede that there was a man named Jesus from Nazareth, that he did stand on trial in front of the Roman governor Pontius Pilate, that he was condemned, that he was crucified, that he was killed, that he did die. Now these facts are attested to us by four independent sources that we find in the scriptures, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But even outside of the Bible, we have historical data and historians that report the same things. For example, in the first century, there was a historian named Josephus, a man who was not a Christian, who had no claim to the Christian faith, who had no invested interest in Jesus, who himself attested to these same facts, that Jesus of Nazareth was put on trial by Pilate and put to death. But there are some who say, no, 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 listen, Jesus didn't die. The tomb was empty that morning because he looked like he died. He passed out while under exhaustion on the cross they laid him in the tomb. He regained consciousness while lying there on Saturday. He then rolled the stone away, walked out. Now again, there's no dispute that the tomb was empty that morning. Because if, if the Christians were going around saying that Jesus had risen from the dead, anyone could have simply pointed to the body. But no one could produce the body. That was the problem. That's what led everyone to try and come up with some kind of hypothesis. No one could produce the body that morning. And so, if Jesus walked out because he had not died, the, the hypothesis goes that when the women went to go there, of course they found it was empty because he regained consciousness, walked out. That's why he was then able to appear to the disciples. That's why he was then able to eat fish and, and bread. That's why he was able to say to his disciples, I'm leaving. And, the, and the, the suggestion then goes that then he left, his disciples went around saying he went to heaven, but really Jesus took off to some remote place, perhaps he retired in the Bahamas or something, and there he lived out his days and died. Now what, what do we say to that? Here's what I want you to hear. The reason it seemed like Jesus was dead was because Jesus was dead. He had died. Look, the Romans were good at many things at that point in history. And one of the things that they were good at was execution. They had perfected it to an art form. They thought up the cross. They thought up flogging. They thought up crucifixion. It is very difficult to imagine that soldiers who were around death and execution their whole lives 
could not tell the difference between exhaustion and death. And then we're supposed to imagine that this man who had been flogged, if you've seen the movie The Passion of the Christ, you get a picture of what that procedure was like. I don't go into the details now for the sake of time, but you can imagine that chunks of flesh were dropped off. It's recorded in history that men died simply from flogging alone, without the crucifixion. The blood loss alone was enough to kill men as it did. But then, to believe this, we would have to say that this Jesus, who was then flogged, who was too weak to carry his own cross but needed aid from a man named Simon of Cyrene, then took the cross, was then crucified, spikes drilled into his wrists and to his feet. He was then, he was then if he had not, at the end of all that, stuck in the side with a spear, a spear that was cut down to his heart, so that blood and water gushed forth, medically confirming his death. But then that this Jesus, now half dead, was placed into the tomb. After three days of no medical treatment, no food, no water, regained strength, half dead, rolled away a half-ton stone, fought off trained Roman guards, appeared to his disciples, walked seven miles with holes in his feet from the nails, and somehow convinced everyone that he had a powerful, resurrected, glorified body rather than a broken, crucified one. At that point, even if you went to Philadelphia Public School, you go, okay, I get that. That's, that's not it. That's not believable, right? Here's what I want you to hear. The reason Jesus looked like he died was because he died. Paul says it this way, I delivered to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Here's a fact of history. Jesus Christ died. Here's a second fact I want you to consider. Paul goes on in verse 4 to say, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures and that he was buried. Here's the second fact. Jesus was buried. Again, I am not making theological statements here yet. I'm simply saying facts. Jesus died. Jesus was buried. Now before we get to Jesus rising from the dead, we had to establish that he died. But before we get to the empty tomb, we have to first establish that there was a tomb. Because I want you to hear again, in, in trying to present an alternative hypothesis to what happened on that Sunday morning 2,000 years ago, some will discredit that Jesus was not buried. There was no empty tomb because there was no tomb. For example, I'll, I'll read you a quote by a, a retired Episcopalian bishop named John Shelby Spong. This is a bishop who does not believe in the literal resurrection of Jesus. He says this, Jesus would have been buried, quote, in a shallow, unmarked public grave shared by other victims. His body would have decayed quickly in the Middle Eastern heat unless it had first been devoured by wild dogs that frequented public burial places in the ancient Jewish world. The realization of this probable fate suffered by the body of Jesus was in all likelihood so painfully hurtful to the early Christians that their emotions drove them to create the comforting legends of a proper burial in a proper tomb located in a beautiful garden owned by a wealthy ruler named Joseph. You hear what Spong says? Spong is saying, come on, give me a break. Everyone knows that crucified criminals in that day were not given a proper burial. Everyone knows they were thrown into the public mass grave. What likely happened is Jesus' body was devoured by dogs rather than any kind of myth or legend that he was buried in a nice garden by a rich man named Joseph. Now again, what do we say? 
Again, I want you to hear, and, and I believe the scriptures, and I know that to be my bias as you come into the conversation, but these four independent witnesses all attest to the same thing. All four gospel writers record Joseph of Arimathea, this rich man that had buried Jesus. But again, outside of the Bible, I could point you to first century historians like Philo, or again, our boy Josephus, who again is not a Christian, has no vested interest in Christianity. He says, the Jews are so careful about funeral rites that even malefactors who have been sentenced to crucifixion are taken down and buried before sunset. That's a first century historian who is not a Christian who says this, the Jews were so particular in that day about their burial rituals that even for one who was crucified, they would take them down from the body before sunset and bury them. That's outside the Bible. And what do you know? The Gospels attest to this very same thing. And if that were not enough, I want you to hear. All four Gospel writers specifically named Joseph of Arimathea, one of the leaders of the Jewish council, a member of the Sanhedrin, one of the leading councils that had put Jesus to death. This rumor, this news of Jesus' burial and resurrection was circulating in Jerusalem. Why would they take the risk of naming a man who could be checked with, verified, questioned? If this was all a hoax, somebody could ask him. He could deny the whole thing. The whole thing would go away. The Christian movement would stop dead in its tracks. And if they were making up this legend, this myth, in the early Christian church, there was this hostility towards the Jewish council because the Christians believed that these leading Jewish leaders had put Jesus to death. Why in their fable would they take a leader of the Sanhedrin and make them, make him the hero of this whole story? There was already skepticism, hostility, animosity between the two. Why would they pluck one of the enemies who had put Jesus to death as the supposed hero who grants him this glorious burial? I want you to hear there's more that we could say, but here's what I would have you hear. It was not that Jesus' body was devoured by dogs. History tells us that he was buried. So two facts. Jesus was dead and Jesus was buried. Paul says it this way, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures and that he was buried. So here's the third one. Jesus appeared to many. Jesus had died. Jesus was buried. And here's another fact Many claimed to have seen Jesus alive. Again, I'm not making a theological statement. I'm saying to you, historically, many claimed to have seen Jesus alive. Now again, I want to say, there is very little doubt that that tomb was empty on that Sunday morning. Very little doubt. And many different hypotheses were put together why it was so. Some said the disciples might have stole the body. In fact, that was the first rumor circulated even then. We'll talk through why that does not make sense. Some say the authorities took it, that the Jewish people knew, and hear this, they knew that Jesus had predicted his own resurrection, and so they preemptively took the body, or got the Roman soldiers to take the body away, and that's why the tomb was empty that morning. But again, if that was their concern when the Christian movement was beginning and everyone was saying that he had risen, why would they not simply produce the body? And Christianity would come to a crashing halt. Here's the reason that Paul says. Paul says the reason is because after he was dead and after he had been buried, he rose on the third day and he appeared to many. 
Here's how Paul says it in verse 5. He appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. I want you to hear this. Over and over and over again, over a period of 40 days, many people claimed to see Jesus alive. And I want to commend that to you to say the resurrection is not the fabrication of one guy sitting in a cave by himself making up a myth, a legend, a fable for the world. The resurrection is the account of hundreds of witnesses. If there was any court case in Philadelphia today and you had over 500 witnesses testifying to the same thing, that would be pretty convincing evidence. So it was with the resurrection. When the resurrection accounts are given, you see that Jesus appears to a woman named Mary Magdalene and to other women. He appears to the disciples without a man named Thomas and with a man named Thomas. He appears to two men walking the seven-mile road to Emmaus. He appears to men standing by the beach and fishing. He keeps on going. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says this, He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, and then he adds this curious little note, most of whom who are still alive. Why does he say that? He's writing this account, and 1 Corinthians was written roughly 25 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And he says, as he's writing this account, Jesus appeared to more than 500 at one time, most of whom are still alive. You know why Paul says that? That's Paul's way of saying, as this letter is going about and being circulated, many of them are still alive. You can ask them. If what I'm not telling you is true, ask them. They're still alive. They're still around. The resurrection was not this event, this thing made up a hundred years later. Twenty-five years after the event, it was being recorded. Five hundred people, names were named. And all of this is the Bible's invitation as to say, you readers who are hearing this, investigate if this is true. Question them. And you find no writings in those days doubting these claims. It would be the equivalent of this. If twenty-five years from now, I stood up and said... I got to pastor this great church called Seven Mile Road, Philadelphia. And get this, we had a property on six acres of land worth $2 million and we got it for free. You think that would be hard for someone to believe? And 25 years from now, if I said, I basically got $2 million handed to me, you think somebody could verify if that was true? If I said to them, you know what? Many of the people that worshipped in that congregation are still alive. Over, over a hundred or so were there. Many of them who were alive. You think someone could track down Nate or Sarah or Bart or ask, was that true? Were you there? Someone could track down Gwyneth or Lily and ask, are these things true? Paul writes, 500 of them saw them at the same time, saw him at the same time, most of whom are still alive, and you find no countering writings, not proving that to be true. Some say, listen, isn't it convenient Jesus appeared to those who were likely to have believed it? Isn't it convenient that Jesus appeared to the very people who wanted to see him alive? Of course there's these resurrection stories and these accounts and these claims. They were all by people who wanted him so badly to be alive. That's not true. Here again what verse 7 says. 
Paul says, Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. He mentions two people specifically, James and himself. And I want you to hear this. James was Jesus' brother. And James, his whole life, did not believe that Jesus was God. I mean, you think about it. If your older brother is walking around telling everyone that he's God, you would think he was crazy. That's what James did. James thought that Jesus was crazy. And yet this same James is later stoned to death for faith that this Jesus was God and was who he said he was and had risen from the dead. You know who else was not looking for the risen Jesus? Saul of Tarsus, the man Paul who wrote this letter. Saul of Tarsus was so not looking for Jesus that he literally put to death those who said Jesus was alive. He was so anti the Christian claim that he killed a man named Stephen for saying that Jesus was the Messiah who had risen from the dead. Saul frequently killed those who claimed that Jesus was alive. That man was not looking for Jesus anywhere. And yet Saul says, He appeared to me too, as to one untimely born. And Saul believed he could do no other. Some will say, listen, okay, fine, but what they all saw was a hallucination. Everyone saw a vision, a hallucination. Medically speaking, the doctors in the room can tell you, 500 people do not share the same hallucination. It does not happen. Nor do different people at different times in different circumstances all hallucinate the same thing. You're not going to get all hundred of us to hallucinate the same thing at the same time. It, then others will say, look, it, it wasn't a hallucination, it wasn't a vision, it's just a myth. It's just a legend, it's just a fable that good people tried to say to encourage people. Here too, there are many problems. For one, do you know that the gospel writers tell us that the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection were who? Not Peter, not John, not James, not the pillars of the church that you could believe. A sinful woman named Mary Magdalene. Do you know why that's a problem? In that day, a woman was so not thought of that her testimony was not even admissible in court. So if she had seen a crime happen, no judge would even give two cents to what she had to say. Her testimony was not even admissible in court. So if the disciple writers are making up this legend, why would they put it on the backs of those who would be least likely to be believed? If, if you were making up something in the South during the Civil War, why would you say these are verified by these two black slaves? The, the whites would have disowned that. Far greater, far greater was how women were dismissed in that day. Why would the disciples not have made up Peter was the first one to see it, the rock, or James, or John? Why would they cast it upon women, and not even just a woman, a sinful woman that the rest of the culture would have looked down on? Even in today's court, if a prostitute comes in to give her testimony, that already puts some doubt on whatever she's about to say. Why would the entire Christian claim rest on the testimony of some women? Unless it happened that way. And, and here's the other thing. If they were going to make it up, if this was a big conspiracy among the 11 of them, if they got into an upper room and said, look, we followed this guy for three years, he's dead, we've got to make up something. 
If they made that up, wouldn't you think that one of them, when they're facing death, would have cracked and said, we're kidding, we're just kidding, sorry about that. Like when John is being put in boiling oil, boiling oil is what John faced. Wouldn't he at that point have said, we're so sorry, this went too far. When James is about to be beheaded, when Peter's about to be crucified upside down, wouldn't one of them have cracked and said, this was a hoax. Every single one was killed for their faith. They went to their death believing that what they had seen was true. Here's what I want you to hear. Jesus died. Jesus was buried. Many people claimed to have seen Jesus alive. Paul says, Christ died according to the Scriptures and He was buried and then He appeared to Cephas and to the other disciples and 500 brothers at one time, many of them who are still alive. Then He appeared to James and to the disciples and last of all to me as to one untimely born. Last fact, Jesus died, Jesus was buried. Many people claim to have seen Jesus alive. The last one, this news transformed the world. I want you to hear this. This news, the news of Jesus' resurrection, transformed the world. As we close our consideration of the resurrection this morning, I want you to consider the impact upon time and space, globe and history, that this single message had on the world. And here's what I want you to hear. Not even the most hardened, cynic, opponent, skeptic can deny that whatever happened in 33 AD, the world has never again been the same place. Does that make sense? That's not a theologian's talk. That is history. That is anybody worth their dime would tell you. Whatever happened in 33 AD, the world has never again been the same place from that moment on. Whatever happened on that Sunday 2,000 years ago, the world forever changed. And I want you to consider the impact that this news, that this man named Jesus of Nazareth had died and risen again, had on the world. From smaller circles to big, I want you to consider just the impact it had on his disciples. Just the impact. These disciples were transformed. I want you to hear this. These men who were dying of fear had overnight lost their fear of dying. They who were dying of fear had lost their fear of dying. They who had denied, had betrayed, had abandoned. They who were huddled together in a room, afraid that whoever got Jesus was then going to get them, were overnight transformed into the most courageous men you had ever seen. How did that happen? How did Peter who, when a, a young girl questioned him, broke down with such fear that he swore to heaven that he did not know who Jesus was. How did that man say, I'll, I'll accept crucifixion, only I beg you, let me be crucified upside down because I am not worthy to be crucified as the Lord was. How did John, who fled that night, be willing to be dipped into boiling oil? And by the way, he still survived it and was then exiled to an island in Patmos. What about James when the sword was to his neck and was about to be beheaded and then was? He had run that night. And now he who was dying of fear lost his fear of dying. How do you explain that these men were so immediately, so radically transformed? Unless, perhaps, 
I would commend to you that they had seen the one who defeated death. They weren't scared of death because they saw the one who triumphed over death. They weren't scared to die because they saw the one who had come back from death. And they were then able to shout, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O hell, is your sting? Death has been swallowed up by the victory of the Lord Jesus. I want you to hear this. What about Judaism? Judaism as a religion, thousands of years old, overnight experienced a schism. And many faithful, loyal Jews were overnight transformed. Something happened in 33 AD on that Sunday that caused Judaism to forever be different. How is it that thousands of faithful Jews who had regularly offered sacrifices for their sins stop? Just stop. Sacrifice was how their sins were atoned for. There was no other way. And yet, they just stop. You, you imagine that they knew how weighty sin was. And what would have convinced them that they need not offer any more sacrifices? Or consider that for thousands of years they had gathered together on Saturday, the Sabbath day. And by the time the New Testament is written already overnight, Sunday becomes the most holy day. How do you explain that? What happened in 33 AD on that Sunday that would have caused thousands of faithful Jews that had gone to the synagogue on Sabbath every, every week to suddenly see Sunday as the most holy day of the week. The, the New Testament says, we gather on the first day of the week. Except, perhaps, that it was on the first day that their Lord had risen from the dead. Or, or what about the fact that they who held Yahweh in such high regard that they would not say the word Yahweh with their lips was now willing to say that Jesus, God in the flesh, was equal to Yahweh. I mean, they were called polytheists for that. They had said from the beginning, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That was their declaration for all time. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. How do they suddenly say, Jesus Christ is Lord? What happened on that Sunday, 2,000 years ago in 33 AD, that thousands were immediately transformed? The disciples were transformed. Judaism was transformed. I want you to hear the whole world was transformed. The whole world. This ragtag bunch of 12, 120, maybe 500 who had seen Jesus, they go and spread the news of the risen Jesus. They're willing to die for this faith. They tell everyone they can about it so that by the 4th century, Christianity took over the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was taken over by this ragtag bunch of disciples made up of fishermen and the rest. So that today, Christianity is the largest religion in the world. Something happened on that Sunday, 2,000 years ago, in 33 AD. And I'll end by saying this. A transformed world and a transformed life is still the best evidence for the resurrection. I want you to hear that again. A transformed world, a transformed city, a transformed culture, a transformed life is still the best evidence for the resurrection. When you come to Seven Mile Road, you are looking around at evidence that Jesus is alive. I'm telling you. 
You talk to Shibu. Shibu may not quote Philo or Josephus. He may not point you to these sources. But he'll tell you, two years ago I came here and I heard Ephesians 2 that I was dead in my trespasses and my sins. But God being rich in mercy and grace because of the great love with which he loved us made us alive in Christ Jesus and seated us in the heavenly places. For it is by grace we have been saved through faith and this not from ourselves, it is the gift of God so that no one should boast. And he knows that Jesus is alive because Jesus changed his life. Yes, Dom, Dom may not point you to the facts about it, the hypothesis, but he'll tell you he knows what it was like to walk years away from the Lord and Jesus changed him like that. Ask him his story. Overnight, something happened like it happened that day 2,000 years ago. Something happened that he, he could say, it. I was dead and now I was alive. Like Jesus was dead and now alive. I could keep going. Every single Christian at Seven Mile Road could tell you the same thing. I know he's alive because I was dead and now I'm alive. And I was in sin and now I've been forgiven. I was headed for hell and now I'm going to heaven and I had no thought of God, and now Jesus is Lord. A transformed life is still great, good evidence for the resurrection. So four things. Jesus died. Jesus was buried. Many claim to have seen Jesus alive. The world has never again been the same. So what do you make of it? Paul says, here's what I make of it. I delivered to you what I received of first importance that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And here's the last thing I would say to you. If that's true, and I'm, I'm suggesting to you, you leave from this place and begin your own inquiry and investigate. If that's true, if Jesus said, I am going to die and then I will rise again, and if it's true, that means he's trustworthy. You can trust him. And if he's telling the truth about his resurrection, you can trust him for everything else that came from his mouth. That means when he says, I am God, you can believe he is God. When he says, I am dying for the forgiveness of your sins, you can believe that your sins are forgiven. When he says, I am the resurrection and the life, he who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. You can believe He's the resurrection and the life, and though you die, yet shall you forever live. If what He said about the resurrection is true, then believe it all. Let's pray together. God, come in the flesh, in the person of Jesus Christ, born in Bethlehem for this very day, who then lived a perfect and pure life, obeying the Father as we were supposed to and did not, who then willingly gave his life to experience the punishment, wrath, death, and condemnation that we deserve but did not, who poured out your life even unto death, to save your enemies, to forgive those who had no thought for you, who had committed sin in every wicked way, and yet to radically redeem them and transform them forever, who then came to life on the third day, risen 
by the power of His Father and the Holy Spirit, raised to life in glory, in triumph, thereby as evidence that God had accepted His perfect sacrifice and as vindication that He was the victor. Sin is not the last word. Satan is not the victor. Hell is not our end. Death has no sting because sin has been forgiven. And Jesus has the last word. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And heaven is now our eternal home. We give you thanks. We glorify you. We worship you. We praise you. We say everything in our life is about you. And everything in our life has been touched by your death and your glorious resurrection. And we now share in victory with you. We are in you now all the way through eternity. Bless every brother and sister, every man and woman, and every child with the grace to believe this good news. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.